All right, well, as we uh, mentioned last week, we are in a summer series called The Questioning God. So we're taking a break from the book of Luke. We'll jump back into that this fall, and we are spending our time, as I've said, oftentimes what we do at the journey is we will uh, take the summer and really go into more topical um, theme topics and dive in and see what God's Word said about it, whereas usually we preach through a book of the Bible kind of verse by verse. And so um, this summer, we're looking at the question, we're calling the series The Questioning God, because God often uses um, good questions to get at the heart of the most important subjects in our life. And if you reflect, you can, you can uh, acknowledge this and, and remember back to uh, perhaps sometimes, if you've ever been in counseling, it, it can actually be really frustrating because counselors don't actually tell you that much. Anybody been there? They just ask a lot of really good questions. And by really good, I mean really like maddening questions. This is what they do. And they ask you questions and then they just sit there and look at you. And there's some kind of voodoo training stuff that just gives them the ability to just sit there while you fidget and wrestle and squirm. And, and they're just like, yeah, whenever you're ready, I'll listen. And it has a way to just penetrate really deeply into our souls. We know that a good question can both expose and then encourage. So obviously, God is, is the best, the original communicator. And so he knows this skill. And so he oftentimes in Scripture will um, use questions to ask either an individual or his people at large something to get to the heart of the issue. And so... Um, last week, we talked about how um, the question that Jesus posed to his disciples, what will it profit a man to gain the whole world but to lose his soul? As so we talked about the, the emptiness of money. And, and so today, we're going to kind of see how Jesus deals with somebody that's actually coming, uh, that's actually coming to him with that reality. We, we, we said last week that our society, our culture, gives us example after example of people who achieve all the things that we think we will really make us happy, and then we realize that it doesn't actually make them happy as their life ends up in shambles or in rehab or suicide or whatever it may be, or just in a longing. Um, David Myers, in his book, The Pursuit of Happiness, Who is Happy and Why, points to, this, points to the statistic that between 1957 and 1990, the per capita income of Americans doubled in real money. Yet the number of Americans who reported being very happy remained unchanged at one-third. The explanation, he says, is that people in our culture have plenty to live on, but little to live for. Doubling one's money and having more things does not make for happiness. Many people, both in our congregations and in our world, sense that something vital is missing in their lives. So in this week's passage, we're going to see how someone that has fit that exact mold, that has succeeded, that has money, that has actually got there at a young age, and has realized there's still something missing. And he comes to Jesus, and we're going to get to hear exactly. So we've kind of talked about the emptiness of money. Now we're going to hear what Jesus says to him, or really what he asks of him to kind of drive a little bit deeper. And what is the, what is the answer to this question? If, if money won't provide fulfillment, it won't provide deep level satisfaction, then what will? And so that is where our passage takes us today. Um, this story is recorded in three out of the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this story um, at different um, details, but they all record the story of this young man. We learn from the other accounts that he's actually a rich, young, 
man who's actually a ruler as well. And so if you look back with me, just keep your Bibles open. We'll be in Mark chapter 10 where Dennis read, and we're going to walk through this passage together. And what we see here is that this is, um, again, this is a, a rich, young man who um, has prestige, has, has really, um, he's, a, he's a ruler probably of a synagogue. And so um, you think he's got all the right degrees, he's, got, um, he's had the right job, and he's actually made, he made his million uh, under 30. He's on, you know, he's going to be the guy that gets the newspaper articles and all of those things. He's, he's the one that everybody kind of holds up as Man, that guy has succeeded. Those, those guys are always good looking, right? Like you can't be young and powerful and have lots of money and be ugly. And so he's a good looking dude and all of those things. And, and yet something prompts him. We find here at the opening scene that he is running toward Jesus. Now we know that, that wealthy people, people of prestige, they don't run in this culture. Like it, it's considered, that would be considered like uh, degrading for someone of that power and prestige to have to, to run. And so this man comes running to Jesus, and he runs up and he, he kneels before him and he asks him, he says, Good teacher, in verse 17, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I want you to think about this. All right, it's easy to just kind of read the Bible and go, Okay, this is the story that's happening, and we, 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 we know that Jesus is going to handle it. I want you to pause. I want you to think about what would you say to this guy? Somebody does this to you, they run up to you, they seem to have it all together, and they come up and they say, Hey, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? What would your response be? you've been in church for very long or you've been trained in evangelism, you're probably going to walk them through some sort of like four spiritual laws, right? Or a gospel presentation, walk them down the Roman road. You're going to tell them how they can place their faith and trust in, in Jesus Christ and they have to believe on his name and they'll inherit eternal life, right? Like we know those types of things and we have scriptural, scriptural basis to, to do those types of things. And yet, uh, and so man, this really seems like, you know, this is really being teed up for Jesus. Like, if you're thinking about an evangel- like evangelistic moment, like, this is, a, this is a softball, like, coming right down the middle. Like, this is an easy day, right? This guy has just come up to you asking you, what do I do to get eternal life? So let's look at what Jesus says. He doesn't go into the whole Romans roach bill. He doesn't tell him to pray a prayer. Instead, he says, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. So Jesus knows that this man's, like a lot of times when religious people would come up to Jesus, it was a trap, right? Like they were trying to, to ask him a question that would ultimately get him in trouble or give them reason to arrest him, kill him, whatever. But, but Jesus knows this guy is sincere. Not only has he ran up to him, he's knelt down before him. Like something has caused this man to uh, humble himself in this way, to at least ask this teacher, whom everybody else in this guy's world, like you got to think if he's a ruler of a synagogue, everybody, all the other religious teachers have rejected Jesus, right? They, they've said that, no, this guy's out of his mind. Like he's, um, he's off his, like we are trying to actually kill him. And something prompts this guy to say, you know what? I got to ask him this question. And so Jesus knows that his, his question, his inquiry is sincere. And yet, like I said, he doesn't just slob up the, the typical answer. Instead, He starts talking to him about his use of the word good. So this man's inquiry is right and good. Like it makes sense that he would be longing for, like Jesus is not surprised by this guy having everything that the world says is good and still longing. Like Jesus understands that. Uh, It says in Ecclesiastes 
um, that, that God has put eternity into the heart of man. Like, so no matter what we get, no matter what we achieve, like we're, we're still going to be longing for eternity, longing for life with God. So Jesus is not surprised by that. And so he kind of affirms, yeah, this guy's question is good and right. His inquiry is good and right. But he, he's starting from the wrong basis. And it has to do with his definition and his understanding and his use of the word good. And so the first thing that Jesus is going to do is redefine that word good. So in ancient Jewish times, for these people, like having wealth, being a wealthy person indicated a blessing from God, which to them meant that you were a good person. If you were suffering or sick or poor, then that meant that you had done something wrong and that was your punishment for it, right? We see this in Job, which we looked at a couple weeks ago. It started off this series. We see that the primary tension in the question of the book of Job is how can somebody who is actually righteous and good, like who has lived a good life, like how can they experience suffering? Like what could God possibly say for himself for allowing that person, Job, who was upright among all people, like, to experience the kind of calamity that he did. And, and we see that Job's friends come over and they say, hey, Job, like clearly you've done something wrong. Like clearly there's sin in your life that you need to repent of. And that's why God has brought this suffering on you. So you need to figure out what that was so you can repent and get over this and God will restore your, your fortune. And we re- realize that that's not the case, that God is teaching a bigger lesson in Job. But we also see that God's people didn't fully embrace that lesson because even in Jesus's time, when he's there with the disciples, we see on more than one occasion that, that his disciples would ask him, uh, particularly one occasion in John chapter 9, like they come up on a man who is blind and he's a beggar. And as they're walking up, his disciples say, hey, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parent, that he's in the condition that he's in? And so there's this predominant thought that, okay, if, if you're suffering, that is because of your sin. And if you're wealthy and prospering, that must be because you're a good person. And that was common in that Jewish time. And Jesus responds to his disciples in John 9 says, uh, nobody. Like, this man is in this situation so that the glory of God can be displayed in this moment. But this leads us to part of the reason that God, this guy is using the word good. Because he, like everybody else in his time, would believe that he is a good person. Because he, he's done well, he's actually lived out the law to a, a large degree, and he's been successful. And so for them in this world, this equates to good. And yet there's something missing. Something that leads him to, to come and fall at Jesus' feet. I got to think that, that for this guy, he, he's coming with a bit of, uh, of a posture of saying, Jesus, like I, I've succeeded in business. I've succeeded in morality. I've succeeded in relationships. I've succeeded in religion. And yet there's still something in my soul. Like, what am I missing? What am I missing? What, what, what should I do? You seem like a good teacher. Like, can you help me see what I'm missing? What must I do? This guy's a doer. He, he's clearly one that is good at accomplishing things, right? He's young and he's got all the success. So he's used to being able to uh, find out a need, find out what he needs to do. And he has the means and the resources and the ability to accomplish it. And so he's coming to Jesus saying, hey, what am I missing? And Jesus picks out his use of the word good to help him understand something. Again, he's right in his pursuit. He's wrong in his approach. You see, this guy thinks that it's just something that he can add to his life, something that he can do that, that is going to 
kind of seal the deal and push him over the edge and finally get him, uh, fill the longing in his soul that none of the other things, the money, the houses, all of those things, none of those things have, have, have sunk in and done what he had hoped they would. And so he's coming to Jesus and saying, what is it? And again, instead of giving him his gospel presentation, telling him to pray a prayer, Jesus focuses in on his word, good. And Jesus says, no one is good except God alone. Now, Jesus is not talking about his own goodness. For years when I read this passage, I thought that Jesus is actually just trying to lead him to the fact that, that Jesus was God. Because obviously, you got to think, we know that on this side of this, this story. But in the moment, Jesus is a radical rabbi who is healing people, preaching with power, uh, telling the winds and the waves what they should do. But nobody really knows for sure who he is yet. And so I always thought for years that that was the angle that Jesus was getting at. It's like, hey, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. You must be acknowledging that I'm God. But I think it goes much deeper than that. And Jesus is actually not talking about his goodness. Or he's not saying, like, no one's good except God alone. So Jesus is saying, I'm not good either. Don't call me good. I think he's pushing deeper into the, the use of this word good for this man. And he's deconstructing the way that the man uses the word in general. Like, Jesus is, is traveling at this point. Jesus has not been in this area long, so this man doesn't know Jesus well. But so for him to just walk up to a man that he barely knows and to call him good, Jesus is going to recognize some assumptions in this man and call him out and begin to kind of deconstruct the way this guy has built up what life is about just because he called Jesus good. And I want, I want us to, to stop and think about this too, like, because the reality is like we're, we're tempted to do the same thing. Like, if you're honest, if you, if you just start polling people on the street and you ask them whether or not they're a good person, a large majority of them are going to say, what? Yeah, sure. And, and if you get asked that, like that your first reaction is going to be, yeah, yeah, sure, yeah, I, I'm, I'm good. And, and, and what are they basing that on? What are we basing that on when we get that question? A lot of times it's, well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so, right? Like we can look down line, like wherever we are in the, in, the, in the scale of good or bad, like we can look down line and see other people that are clearly worse than us, right? Like we can look down, well, I don't, you know, I, I don't treat my family that way. I'm a pretty good dad, so yeah, I think I'm a good person. Or I actually go to work and I provide for my family, so I'm better than that person. Or I'm not this. And we can go all the way down the line to saying, well, I'm not an ISIS or I'm not a terrorist or I want Hitler. And like, like wherever we are, like we can always look down line and find somebody that's quote unquote worse than us. And that makes us feel like we are good. But Jesus says something different. Jesus says, no, no, no. No one's good except God alone. So the truth of the scripture is that we don't define goodness based on relative comparison to the rest of the world. Jesus is going to, before he goes any further into explanation of how you get eternal life, Jesus is going to uh, define for him, really reveal to him the true state of his soul by redefining the word good. And so what Jesus said is, listen, goodness is not relative and compared to other people. We don't define what is good and bad by looking around at other people and going, okay, well, they're, they're this, so that means I'm that. No, it is an absolute that is compared to God. No one is good except God alone. So when we're talking about whether we're good or not, God is the standard, not the people that we pick out, not the people that we say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm better than them. No, God is the standard. So goodness is an absolute term that is compared to God, not a relative term that's compared to other people. We see this in Romans chapter 3, and, and, and the 
the man should have known this. He's a ruler of a synagogue. He's a religious guy. He studies the scripture. And, and this is all over the Psalms and in Isaiah. And, and this is where Paul pulls all this together in Romans 3. And he says this. He says, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does, do, no, no one does good, not even one. Jesus can't answer this man's question until he reveals the true state of his soul. He doesn't quickly tell him to pray a prayer. Because you see, over and over again, the gospel, Jesus is bringing the kingdom of God. And what, how does it say that you enter into the kingdom of God over and over again throughout the scripture? We saw this in Luke. We see it in the other gospels. The first thing to do is to repent, Right? To repent. The kingdom of God is at, near, is at hand. Repent. In order to repent, we have to acknowledge that we are sinful. You see, this guy comes in thinking that, that he's actually doing pretty well, and, and he's got everything figured out. He's not coming from a place of need. He's coming from a place of sufficiency, and he's saying, hey, I'm, I've got all this. Like, yeah, I've checked all these boxes, and I just feel like one thing's missing. Can you help me figure out what that is? And Jesus says, no, no, no. you've got to lay down that whole list. And none of that makes you good. There's no one's good. God alone. I, I want you to think about the way that Jesus interacts with other people. Most of the interactions that we have are, are Jesus interacting with what they would call in that time sinners, right? Jesus was a friend of sinners. That's what got him killed. The religious people did not like how he approached the people of the day that the rest of the society had really pushed away, and Jesus engages them. And what you see is time and time again, when people come with a, with a massive need for healing or for forgiveness, Jesus will tell them often, hey, your faith has made you whole. Go and sin no more. Jesus doesn't start there with these people. He doesn't tell them, hey, nobody's good. Like, they know they're not good. That's why Jesus says, like, the, the good news is come for the, the marginalized, the poor, the blessed are the poor in spirit because they're going to see the kingdom of God because they understand their need. Like, they know they're bankrupt. They know they need a Savior. And so, therefore, the, the, the kingdom is easy for them to see and easy for them to enter into because they are well aware of their need. Jesus is saying, he's going to say later, like it's easier for a rich man or easier for a camel to um, go through the eye of a needle than for the rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Rich is bad? No. What he's saying is they're going to trust in their wealth and that's going to be an obstacle that they're going to have to overcome because it, it's going to be really difficult for them to lay that down and to trust in Jesus instead of their own sufficiency. And yet the people that get it, there's still a longing there. So Jesus is entering right into this tension, and he's going to go right to the heart of the matter with asking these questions. But the first thing that he's going to bring this guy to is understanding that he is not good. Listen, we must all feel the weight of our sin in order to be saved. Like we have to feel, and this is a danger for us in our day and age, especially in our culture where it's still pretty Bible Belt influenced and, and, and really Christianity is something that is for good people, right? And good people are going to go to a church and like people kind of still have this understanding like that's what's what you're supposed to do. And even people that don't go to a church, they could still tell you what their home church is or they're still on a, a church role of one of the first, second or third Baptist or, or whatever. And so they, they all know like I should have a church that I can point to. And so they're like, we know like it's become the thing that good, safe people do. It's interesting, a guy named Andrew Walls, who's a Christian historian, talks about how all other world religions 
um, wherever they're founded, the center of that religion kind of stays put, right? So um, for, for Buddhism, like it, 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 it's founded in the, it, it kind of stays in that area, right? Hinduism is, is founded in the, the Far East and India, and it's still primarily is centered and focused there. But Christianity started in Jerusalem, and then it, and it kind of moved to the Mediterranean, and it kind of moved to the North African, and it moved to, to Europe and then to the Western world of the United States. But the, the observation that he makes is that over and over again, what will happen when it becomes, when, when Christianity becomes the, the majority culture and it becomes the thing that, that the majority of, of safe, good, right people do, and that's what it is, it's the good, safe, right religion, that it loses its power and it becomes dormant and the center of it is going to move away. And we've seen that. We've seen that Christendom is really a thing of the past here in our country. And it's hard for some of us to let that go. We still think that what is needed is for the Ten Commandments to be back in schools and for prayer and and those types of things because we're used to that growing up and our hearts kind of long for that kind of culture. And listen, I I think it's actually going to be good for the church as that goes away and it separates the the sheep from the goats, and we see who really is following Jesus and who was just a part of this deal because it was the good, safe thing to do. What Walls points out is that over time, when it becomes just the, the right thing to do, it loses its power, and the focus, the center of it is going to go elsewhere. That's why we've seen China explode whenever they shut the doors to missionaries, and we didn't know what, was going to, what it was going to be like whenever they reopen, and what we found is the church actually flourished under persecution. That's why we see that now actually more than 50% of the world's Christians are no longer in the, the Western world. Like the, it's like Africa used to be almost completely unreached, and it's exploded now. And, and it's go, like Jesus is taking his kingdom, just like he said he would, to the nations. And what we have when it becomes the normal thing, the gospel loses its power because it becomes what good people do. Jesus has to remind us, listen, you're not good. You're not good. Like one of the biggest obstacles to doing ministry here in Illinois is like sometimes you have to get people lost in order to get them to save, be saved. Like you have to help them see their need for a Savior before they can actually confess Jesus as Savior because Jesus refuses to be something that is just like a resource that's added to help us achieve our agenda. Right? Jesus refuses to serve our idols and our, like what we want to do in life. He's not going to come alongside us and give us just that little, last little boost to reach our world. Like, no, Jesus comes in and demands to be Lord of our life, and he becomes our whole new agenda. And that's the point of what he's getting at here, and he's going to go even deeper here in this moment. But, but really, this is, a, this is a lesson that Jesus had said over and over again. All four Gospels record Jesus talking about the fact that when he was questioned by the religious people, hey, why do you hang out with these people? Why do you live your life this way? Jesus' answer, we saw it just earlier in Mark chapter 2. We saw it in Luke uh, as we walked through it um, this spring. But Jesus' answer is, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus said this over and over again. Those who are well, those who are good, they're not going to go to a doctor. They're not going to call for a physician. Jesus says, I've come to seek and to save that which is lost. That there's a deep wound, a deep flaw, a deep fracture in the universe that, that humans are trying to find hope and life and eternal life in stuff. 
just saying it's incomplete. And you'll, you'll actually get enslaved to that mess. And I've come to rescue you, but I'm not going to come alongside you and serve your, your master of something else. I will become your new master who gives you life and then puts all the rest of those things in order. It's not the well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners. That is the point that he's driving home to this man. Until this man realizes that he's a sinner, he cannot be saved. This is the first step to finding eternal life, understanding that you are a sinner without hope, totally depraved and unable to seek God or earn his favor on your own. That's why we're so adamant about saying it every week that here at the journey, like we don't want to be a place that pretends that we're doing better than we are. Like we want to be a place that is, uh, that people can be broken, like that it's okay to not be okay. Now listen, it's not okay to stay there, Because the beauty of it is while we can't be good on our own, Jesus' goodness is imparted to us through the gospel. And we'll talk more about that, but that's the beauty of it. So it's not okay to stay there. Jesus is going to make us new. But listen, so often in churches, people pretend and act like everything's cheesy and and, and just good. And we ask each other how we are. We say, oh, it's good. Meanwhile, our marriages are suffering. Meanwhile, we're uh, enslaved to an addiction to, to porn or to a substance. And we don't know how to tell anybody because the pressure is so great to be this good type of person. Jesus said the kingdom of God's not about that. It's actually, you're, you're getting close. You're, you're leaning in. You're about to understand whenever you realize that you're not good. And you realize that you are totally broken and sinful and without hope. So, man, Jesus is not approaching this guy the way that we would, right? Like he's failing evangelism one-on-one. Like, he just whiffed that. Totally Charlie Brown is approach. Like, what, what we think is the right thing to do, like, Jesus totally, but, but surely that's enough of it, right? Like, now he's going to tell the guy how to put his faith in Jesus and, and pray the prayer, right? Well, let's keep going. Let's see what he does now. Verse 19. So he's, he's talked about the goodness thing. Now he says, all right, you want to know how to in, inherit eternal life? He says, you know the commandments. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't defraud. Honor your father and mother. The guy says, teacher, I've kept all of these from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. So Jesus is going to go even deeper here because when you're thinking about goodness in relative terms, then you can, just, you can justify yourself pretty easily by, by looking at what you're doing well, right, and ignoring or becoming completely blind to the large root sin in our life. So this man, with integrity, says to Jesus, hey, I've kept all of those from my youth. And Jesus doesn't debunk him. If I'm Jesus at this point, I'm going to be like, no, nah, man, like, I don't know if you heard my little sermon on the mount. It's kind of a big deal, but that's where I told you all. Like, I know you've heard not to murder, but I said, hey, if you have anger in your heart, you've already murdered your brother. And if you've got anger, you've already murdered your brother in your heart. So you've actually already failed that commandment. Same thing about, you know, lust and all the things. Jesus doesn't go there with him. Jesus doesn't debunk it. He just, he just acknowledges it and says, okay. And instead, it says that he looked at him and that interesting note and loved him. And then said to him, go sell all that you have. He says, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have. Give it to the poor. And you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Listen, again, you've got to read the Bible and like stop and take this in. 
You just, you just blow them past that? And you're like, oh, okay, good. Like, what? It's a cool story. No, first of all, it's a radical instruction from Jesus to sell everything you have. Like everything? I don't know many of us that are signing up for that, first of all. But then second of all, if you really stop and think about it, like, did Jesus just tell that guy to do works to earn his salvation? Like, isn't that anti-gospel? Like, again, we're like, man, Jesus must be having a bad day. Like, somebody get him a Snickers. This guy just wanted to know how to get eternal life. Jesus just, like, unloading on the dude and, like, put, like kicking him while he's down. It's like, what is Jesus doing here? What, did he really just tell this guy to go do some works to earn his salvation? The answer is obviously no, but, it, but why did Jesus answer with a, such a sincere question with instruction to do good works? And the answer is because he's coming after his heart. He's going for his heart. See, Jesus isn't after converts. He's not trying to run the tally up of people that made decisions. Jesus is after disciples, worshipers, those that have given their lives to him. Those are the ones that are going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Those are the ones that are going to be saved. And as Jesus puts it in Matthew's gospel, no one can serve both God and money. No one can serve two masters. Our ultimate allegiance is going to funnel down to one thing only. Jesus knows this. He knows you can't serve two masters. And so he looks at the man and he loves him and he comes after his real master. And by this, Jesus shows them that while he may have upheld the laws that the society kind of deemed most important, that he had indeed broken the first and most important commandment. The failure to love his God and to not have any idols before him. So Jesus tells him, hey, sell everything you got. Give it to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. So just to be clear, like this is not general advice for all believers, but it was super appropriate in this instance. Jesus doesn't tell all of us to sell everything that we have, but he does demand that we, when we come to him, we put away our gods. We put away our idols, whatever the things are that was driving our life. Like Jesus demands that we lay them down, whether that be possessions or power or a person or a passion. Jesus has come to seek and to save the lost He's not here to supplement our efforts to help those. Like Jesus is not here to help those who help themselves. Okay? That is not a Bible verse. Jesus is here to help those who understand that they are helpless. And they cry out to him for salvation. He refuses to be added as just a resource to drive our own agenda. He wants to become our treasure, our new agenda. But listen, I want you to pause and consider the context. Like Jesus is not just walking by and like drive by shaming this guy and just pronouncing judgment on him. Jesus is responding to his question, his very sincere question about how to get eternal life. And to be clear, like I think we, we think about that and we think that, uh, he, that the guy's asking, how do I get to heaven when I die? Right? Like that's what, when we think about how do I get eternal life, like we often think about heaven and hell. Right? But in the Jewish world, like their understanding, it, it wasn't about like what happened when you die. Like, it was about uh, completeness or wholeness or life with God, like, a, like an ongoing fulfillment or a purpose to our life. Like That's what they were talking about in eternal life, like something that doesn't disappoint you, something that doesn't leave you wanting more. That's what they were talking about was eternal, 
eternal life in that sense and not just how do I get to heaven when I die. See, we've reduced the gospel by, by making it just about what happens when we die and how do we get to heaven. So here, pray this prayer. If you pray this prayer, then you're in and you're good. When we don't deal with somebody's idols and their, their, their heart's worship, listen, then they haven't truly confessed Jesus as Lord. To just say that with your mouth and not believe it in your heart, like that, we're, we're missing the point there. Jesus would tell him in in John chapter 5, verse 44, he says, listen, how can you believe? How can you believe when you're trying to get glory from one another instead of the true glory from God? Because if you're still pursuing the glory that comes from power, possessions, approval, whatever it may be, then you can't fit God into that and find true salvation. To truly believe means that you're going to lay that down and instead replace it with the glory of God. Of God. So God's not trying to take from this man. Jesus doesn't need this man's money. He doesn't find it a sick joke to see if he'll give it all away. Like he's loving this man in this moment. He's answering his questions. He says, hey, like, man, I actually care about you. And I hear that you actually want to know the answer to this question. And there's, there's one thing that's keeping you from getting eternal life. There's one thing that's keeping you from finding joy and hope and fulfillment in your life. And it's your love for money. If you get rid of that, you'll have treasure in heaven. It'll be way better. Then come follow me. That's how you get eternal life. Like Jesus is not saying like, see if you can earn it. He's saying, no, no, this is the way. This is the path. This is not an easy teaching. Jesus had said, listen, the, the, the road is narrow, right? Like, wide is the path that leads to destruction. Many are going to be on that, but the ones that lead to life, like, that's going to be narrow, and few will find it. That's because it's hard. It's hard to give up what we've latched onto as our functional Savior and instead cling to Jesus. But Jesus loves this man, so he's coming after his heart. He says to him, listen, you've put your faith and trust in your wealth and accomplishments, but Jesus tells him, your effort has actually alienated you from God. See, God was his boss, but he was not his Savior. And Jesus says, hey, I want you to think about it this way. Imagine your life without money. Imagine it's all gone. No inheritance, no inventory, no servants, no mansions. All of it's gone. And all you have is me. Can you live like that? And how does the man respond to Jesus' counsel? Verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The word sad is, is translated better to, to actually say grieved. He grieved. And the reason it's a better translation is because there's a place in, in the Gospels where the same word is, is applied to Jesus. The same Greek word is applied to Jesus. When, whenever he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's starting to sweat blood, he is grieved and he's in deep distress. Why? Because he knew what he was facing, not the pain of the cross. Like, that's not what Jesus is worried about. Jesus knows that he's about to lose his most prized possession, the things that centers him, the thing that life is all about. He's about to lose his father. He's about to lose the communion with his father. He's about to lose the joy of his life, the core of his identity. And Jesus was going to be losing his spiritual center, his very self. So it's interesting. When Jesus called this young man to give up his money, the man started to grieve because money was for him what the father was for Jesus. 
Money was for this man what the father was for Jesus. It was his identity. It was his core, what he lived for. So to lose money would have been to lose himself. To lose what little sense of having kind of covered up the stain that he'd gained. It's one thing to have God as your boss, as an example, as a mentor. But if you want God to be your savior, and Tim Keller says you have to replace what you're already looking to as a savior. Everybody's got something. Everybody has that thing as a functional savior in our life that we actually functionally, truly believe with our actions and live out that is going to actually save us, fulfill us, lead us to life. So what is that to you? What do you cling to? For many of you, that's what's kept you from experiencing the true gospel. That's what's what's kept you from actually crossing the line between just going to church and doing the right thing because it's what good people do to actually experiencing joy, fulfillment, and hope, and change. Freedom from sin. Because you want God, but you want that one thing more. Jesus tells this guy to give up his possessions because he's, he's saying, like, you can't serve two masters. Until you lay down your pursuit of power, approval, whatever it may be, you're not going to be able to experience Jesus and, and his kingdom of eternal life. For others, like, we've experienced true salvation from Jesus, but we still struggle with, like, we still have to battle against idolatry. Like, that's true of all of us. We default back to that. We default back to an idol of, for me, it's approval. Like, whenever I feel like, uh, like somebody's not thinking well of me or it didn't go well, like, whatever, that can crush my soul. And Jesus does that to me regularly just to remind me that my identity's not in what people think about me, right? And it's about him and who he said. And so Jesus has to knock me back down regularly. And I've got to the point now where I, I could see it coming, where I start to despair and I go, all right, yeah, I actually know what you're doing here, Lord. And, I, and it still stings, but I run back to him instead of running to despair. But here's the deal. Idols can't just be removed. They've got to be replaced. So Jesus doesn't say, just get rid of your money. He says, hey, you do that and then you're going to have treasure in heaven and come follow me. The way that you've ran after money, the way you've ran after success, you come run after me now. can't just remove idols we have to replace them with something and that that something is god of course like that's why we worship some of you it's hard to connect you don't know why we sing why we do what we do but like that's why we worship to get our hearts to remind ourselves to sing to one another to declare these truths to our own souls like there's that one song that says bless the lord oh my soul that comes from scripture where we're just telling ourselves i have to bless the lord in the way that i bless other things pursue other things exalt other things have ran after other gods like it was easy to pursue money right it was easy to pursue your spouse it was easy to pursue the thing your functional savior all those things make sense and it's easy to kind of give your time to it if it's comfort it's easy to rush home to the couch or whatever it may be, but we have, to, we have to fight against and battle against until Jesus comes back and rescues us from the presence of sin. We're going to have to battle against our hearts drifting back to idolatry. So that's why we worship. So no, Jesus isn't commanding moralism from this guy. He's actually empowering us to love. Jesus doesn't send us into moralism. He's calling us to love and empowering us to love. That's why he goes after this guy's idol. So they can have his full heart and then empower him to have life and actually live out God's commands truly. Listen, our, our greatest and most important command is to love God, period. And that is how we overcome sin. That's why when Jesus is asked, what's the, most, what's the greatest commandment? 
He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He says, the second is like it, love your neighbor. You do those things, you're not going to break the other commandments. Martin Luther unpacked in one of his great writings, and he's, he talked about like the reason that the Ten Commandments start with the forbidding of idols is that really every other sin is born out of breaking this first command. That we're not going to covet, steal, lie, murder, murder, or do anything else unless we've allowed an idol to creep into our life and to take first place in our life and say, I've got to have that or my life won't be complete. When we allow that to happen, that's when we follow into the other sins. That's when we start lying, cheating, stealing, coveting, whatever, because we believe I've got to have that. And, and because God has been dethroned in our heart and we're pursuing that. So that's why it's the greatest and most important command. That's why whenever you sin and like if you're in Christ Jesus, like there's no condemnation for you. If you're sin and you're struggling, you're struggling with an addiction. You're struggling. You can't get over this or whatever it may be, like with cowardice or porn. Whatever. Like, the, like the instruction from the scripture is not, well, wait, like pull yourself up by your bootstrap. You figure this out and someday you can be my son. It's no, no, no. I've forgiven you. You are my son. You are my daughter. There's no condemnation for you. And the way that you overcome sin, the way you truly change is by worshiping Jesus. By letting your affection for him grow greater than your affection for sin. That's how you overcome change. That's why you change. That's how you change and overcome sin. And Tim Keller talks about like the, we have to dismantle, identify and dismantle our idols in order to truly change. That's what Jesus is doing for this man. So as we kind of close, I want to ask you, what is that for you? What is, what is your one thing that you cling to that keeps you from, from really experiencing eternal life? Like, you know you want Jesus, but this thing. Like, I could never tell anybody this. I can never come clean about that. I can never give up that. Like, what is your one thing, your functional savior? And if you don't know, you just ask yourself a few questions. Like, this guy, he got very sad when Jesus told him to give up his money. Like, that's not just like it. Like, he was downtrodden, disheartened. So if you don't know what your functional savior, what your idol, think about what makes you really, really, really upset. Where do your emotions come out? Tim Keller says, pull your emotions up by their roots and you'll find your idols clinging to them. So listen, there's some things we pray about, we don't get it, we just kind of move on, right? There's other things we pray about, we long for, God doesn't serve that and we're devastated. Whatever it is that if you don't get it or you lose it, life doesn't seem worth living anymore, or you get bitter, angry, feel like you're slighted by God, whatever that is, like you've probably found your idol. Listen, God, he's calling that out in you in love. Remember, he looks at the man, loves him, tells him to give up his money because his money is what's keeping him from treasuring Jesus. So what's your one thing? What do you need to repent of? What do you need to lay aside so that Jesus can bring you life? Secondly, I want to ask, are we sharing hard truths with one another? Like if that was loving for Jesus to call out that idol, then this needs to inform how we interact with one another as Christians here in the church. Like we need to be willing to call each other out to speak hard truths and to challenge each other's idols because it's loving. And, it, and if you think about it, it's really unloving not to, right? It's unloving to let somebody keep pursuing something that is going to ultimately end in their destruction. It's, it's loving to call them out, to invite them back to Jesus. Like, we need to be speaking hard truths to one another. And then lastly, are we sharing the gospel the way that Jesus does here? Are we just quick to kind of get to that prayer, prayer, prayer and get them, like, signed up? All right, we got this one saved. Or are we actually listening? Francis Schaeffer, when he's talked about, like, what he would do if he knew he only had one hour with somebody before they die, 
before they died, he said, I'd listen for 55 minutes. He said, and after that 55 minutes, I'd have something to talk about for my five. And what he's saying is he's going to listen and he's going to find out what's important to them, what assumptions they're making, what things they've sought that would bring them joy, and he's going to be able to address them and tell them how Jesus is better. So are we sharing Jesus that way? Are we entering in, even as we disciple our kids, like is it just about morality and rules? Or are we entering into their hearts? What are their hearts inclined to run after? What are the things that they're latching onto? What are the lies they're believing? Are we, are we going after their idols and going after the deep-rooted things in their hearts and, and sharing the gospel that way? The New Testament breaks it down like as we get into the epistles, it talks about like those who are rejected and alone, like the Bible brings adoption and approval and, and embrace, right? Those who are guilt-ridden and can't get over uh, the shame, the Bible brings forgiveness and a newness of life and wipes all that away. Like over and over again, the gospel is the answer. So we need to be listening to what's actually going on in their heart instead of just giving a generic presentation. We need to listen. Find out what their hearts are longing for. What kinds of things have they been seeking to bring them life? And then redirect them and show them how Jesus is better. Church, we need to let Jesus shape how we approach people, how we approach one another, and how we approach God. Let's pray. God, thank you for loving us enough to call out our idols. Thank you for loving us enough to send Jesus. And I just pray that in this moment, Lord, you would send your spirit in a, in a powerful way. That's a silly request. Lord, your spirit's already here. We promised that it would be when two or three are gathered. Like, we know that you're here. And so would you just move in a mighty way and exalt Jesus in a way that melts our hearts and allows us to come and find freedom in the gospel. Wherever we are, Lord, for the first time, trusting you or for just repenting of sin and drifting back to that idol and, and thinking that I really need this instead of you, Lord, just help us to worship you. Help us to cling to you above all else. Exalt yourself during this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.